Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Reagan Canope. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. Today, in 2022, most people's perception of what a district attorney's office does comes from television. It's important for people in our community to have a baseline understanding of how government works, how this American judicial system works. It's so critically important to understand that. The challenge is, like everything else, TV doesn't always get it exactly right. Our mission statement is seeking justice and protecting our community. Keeping people safe is of paramount importance. I believe so strongly in the mission of what our district attorney's office does. All right, folks, this week, we are very excited. I believe this is our first ever district attorney interview on the Oregon Bridge. We interviewed Kevin Barton, the district attorney for Washington County, my home county, and it was a great conversation. A little bit of background for those who haven't been following district attorney races. Kevin Barton has been in like the top two most expensive DA races in Oregon history in the last two elections. Both times he was sort of the law and order candidate against a more progressive reform candidate, although we talk in this episode about how those labels don't always tell the full story. Washington County, obviously a very large county right next to Multnomah County, which we talk about in this episode and how that proximity impacts his job. Kevin Barton's been on a lot of different nonprofit boards across the county. I think he was first, he was elected to office in May of 2018. So he's now won two elections and is at the beginning half of his second term. Reagan, what were your top takeaways from uh, the episode? I don't know why I thought this because he's an attorney and so uh, he has to communicate and convince juries. But for some reason, I didn't expect him to be as well-spoken as he was. He just <laughs> communicated very effectively. But I, like I said, I think I should have been ready for that. The other thing is he came prepared with the data. We didn't give him any questions in advance and he was ready to like answer these questions with anecdotes data specific examples which i really appreciated so i felt like he was he's just really well prepared to represent the county and talk about his role as kind of a spokesperson for handling crime and what's happening in crime with the community and he did that very well two items i recommend folks listen for in this episode um they're actually two of what i would describe as probably two of the most high profile issues that are likely to be before the legislature in 2023 one is measure 110 and any reforms that the legislature should take up kevin barden has a really i think informed and interesting take Obviously, given his position and his role, it's different than what you've heard from some other guests on this podcast, but there's also some alignment that I'm starting to see, an emerging consensus, I think is what I've described it on the pod. So that's number one. And then two is the public defense crisis, which has been written about a lot. I think average voter doesn't necessarily have a high fluency of understanding of what this is actually about, what the dynamics at play are. And Kevin does a pretty good job of explaining how he experiences that in his role as a prosecutor and why it's bad, not just for those accused of crimes, but also victims of crime and the overall justice system. So I would listen for those two excerpts. But otherwise, yeah, I agree, Reagan. He was a, a really effective communicator as a guest on the plot. We joked, Reagan, before we started recording that we, you know, you never know what you're going to get in a guest <laughs> in terms of, you know, how quickly they answer questions or are they long winded or are they direct or do they give you talking points? And I did think Kevin was pretty straightforward with us, which I appreciate. And I think it makes for good content for our listeners, I hope. Any final words before we uh, hand it over to the uh, interview? Would like anyone who's interested in being a podcast guest to listen to Kevin and how he handled himself. And that is how you be a great <laughs> podcast guest on an interview, a politics show like we have. Oh, here's another reason to listen to the whole episode. Betsy Johnson. 
He's a big Betsy Johnson supporter. And we asked him about that, why he supports Betsy. Is he going to see her through if the polls not, poll numbers are bad, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so listen for that at the end of the episode. Otherwise, subscribe, give us a five-star rating, share with your friends. Thanks for supporting the pod. We really appreciate it. And we will see you back here next week. Later, everyone. All right. Washington County District Attorney Kevin Barton, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me. Thank you for uh, coming on the pod and making Reagan and I look bad. We're ca dressed casually Friday and you've got the full suit on. <laughs> we were just talking about every day in the office, everyone in the Washington County District Attorney's Office is wearing the full suit. That's right. We are attorneys and we go into court. We have hearings and trials and grand jury presentations every day. And, uh, you know, we're meeting people every day, too. Like if you were to walk in my lobby right now, you would see that there are victims waiting for a grand jury. There are witnesses waiting to testify at a trial. And it's an important, I think, thing for us to do to present that appearance of being professional and, you know, putting the best foot forward for our community. Totally. Well, That's I'm going to start with a, a fun question. And then um, Reagan is going to ask a little bit about the mechanics of your office. But my fun question is, what's the and choose your own adventure here. What's the proudest case you've ever prosecuted or the wildest case you've ever prosecuted or maybe the most high profile? Like what comes to mind with that question? Oh boy. Well, there are so many. You know, I've I've been a lawyer for 20 years now. This is my 20th year practicing law and sometimes I look back and it seems like something happened just yesterday, but it, you know, it was 10 years ago. The one that jumps out at me first when you ask that question is a case I handled maybe six or seven years ago, and it involved Stars Cabaret, which is a strip club in Beaverton. Uh -huh. And we had information come to us, first to the Beaverton Police Department and then to my office, that there was a 13-year-old girl who was being held against her will in the back room and essentially being pimped out, being forced to engage in sex acts with customers. That led to a significant investigation and ultimately a prosecution of several individuals, including a manager at STARS who was essentially doing just that. And ultimately, that particular location closed. It's no longer there. But it was one of those cases that just stands out in my mind as first being almost unbelievable. Like you hear about it, you think, can that really be happening in our community, you know, right as thousands of cars are driving by every day? Is that really happening? And sure enough, it was. And uh, I'm really proud that we were able to uh, rescue that victim, hold accountable the people that were doing it and put a stop to it. Wow. So I want to kind of get into just a little bit of background information for people who aren't super aware of like how a district attorney's office functions and what the district attorney actually does. Are you prosecuting cases yourself? Are you running the office? Some of both like take us through what your kind of job duties are. Yeah, so thanks. So first, maybe just taking a step back, talking about what the DA does, what the DA's office does. You know, I talk to lots of community members about this all the time. And what I found over the years is today in 2022, most people's perception of what a district attorney's office does comes from television or movies. And in fact, if I say to people, finish this sentence, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and Will be we all be used you. against you. <laughs> exactly. And I'm not going to ask if the two of you have been Mirandized or arrested, but you both <laughs> finished that sentence. So that you're implying means... that we could be district attorneys is what you're saying. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not implying anything. I'm just saying, you know, your Miranda rights. And yeah, that's right. how do you and how do all of our listeners today, how do we know how that sentence ends? And we know it mostly because we've heard it on TV a thousand times. And 
That's, I think, a really good thing. It's also a challenging thing. It's good in the sense that it's important for people in our community to have a baseline understanding of how government works, how this American judicial system works. It's so critically important to understand that. So that's the good. The challenge is, like everything else, TV doesn't always get it exactly right. And, you know, there are things that happen on TV that I think sometimes set unreasonable expectations. You know, for example, all of the toys and the gadgets in CSI don't actually exist in real life. Uh, you know, we cannot analyze DNA in 45 minutes. And it sometimes, I think, sets unrealistic understandings of how the process works. So one thing I think that's so important is for people to know what happens behind the scenes, to, to the extent possible to create some transparency in government. And there are things that we do that sometimes can't be entirely transparent. For example, we have grand jury proceedings that are, by definition, secret proceedings. And part of that's to protect someone who might be wrongfully accused or to protect the testimony of witnesses who are sometimes very bravely coming forward and reporting something they saw or that happened to them. So in terms of what does the DA's office do, our ultimate goal is to um, prosecute crimes that occur in a, in a county. That's basically what a DA's office does. Taking a step back, uh, our mission statement is seeking justice and protecting our community. So the seeking justice part of that is doing the right thing for the right reason. And the protecting the community is always being mindful that public safety, keeping people safe is of paramount importance. So that's the office. For me, in my particular role as DA, you know, when I was first elected in 2018, I left one role, which I was a line prosecutor in our office, and I had kind of risen through the ranks and eventually was one of the chief deputy DAs. So I left that role where I was going to court every day, trying cases every week, and I became uh, essentially the head manager of everything that we do. And so my focus broadened to every aspect of the office, whether it's our misdemeanor unit, our felony unit, our child abuse, domestic violence, juvenile, all the things that create the breadth of work that we do in the DA's office. So you know, my given day-to-day -day can vary widely. Yesterday, I was reviewing a particular legal issue on a specific case. You know, and today I'm spending time with you making sure the community knows what our office does. So it can just vary day to day in a really wonderful variety of ways. Are you ever in a courtroom these days, like prosecuting cases that like a high profile one, or is that always deferred to your team? I'm going to say the answer is no, I'm not in court today or these days. When I took over as DA, my intent was to continue to try cases. In fact, I kept several cases of mine and I continue to work on those. But the more I went through with my career as elected DA, the more I realized that I didn't have the bandwidth to be able to devote what each of those cases needs and at the same time be able to devote what this office and this community needs. So no, I don't, I don't take an active role in trying cases currently. Mm, that makes sense. So you mentioned being an elected DA. And so I want to talk a little bit about the election side. Our listeners heard this in the introduction, but both of your you've, you've won election twice, correct? You were appointed and then. Well, that's right. I, I won in 2018. And then most recently now in May of 2022. And both of those times, it was an incredibly high profile race. It was in state level news. It was in national level news, really high profile donor names that our listeners will know, like Phil Knight for you. And then I believe George Soros directly to your opponent, at least in the in the previous one. 
what was your experience like in a high profile race? I also super negative, I should say, like there was some really harsh attacks levied in that campaign. And I think you've got a young ish family. So kind of curious what the what your experience was as a candidate in this like really huge microscope. And what was that experience like? Yeah, thanks for the question. Boy, I guess I'll start with in 2018, when I first ran, actually, I'll start a little bit before that. I never set out to be the DA. This just, I guess, to put it out there, this was not a, a lifelong career aspiration of mine or a professional goal where I've you know, taken every step to get to this particular point. Not at all. I decided to run for DA initially because back in, in 2017, so this is now you know about five years ago, the previous elected DA, my boss at the time, he had announced that he was going to retire. And I just, I believe so strongly in the mission of what our office, our district attorney's office does. And that's 2017. So that's before the last couple of years of social turmoil. That's before George Soros and this you know, movement of ultra progressive DAs. That's before all the stuff that we today recognize has really increased the public awareness of the DA's offices and the role that the DA plays. Mm -hmm. Even back then working in the office, I knew on a day-to-day -day basis, the integral part and role that this position plays in making sure that every day is safe for people in our community. So when we learned, we in the DA's office learned that our longtime DA, he had been in the office for over 40 years. He'd been elected for 20 of those years, but working here for 43 years by the time he retired. So that we were losing that stability. Question was, what next? And that's really when I made the decision that I felt obligated to step forward. You have to understand, I think the last thing that I had run for, the last race I had run in was, I believe, junior class vice president in high school. Did you win? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, it was a terrible, terrible defeat. Didn't you know, raise I enough just, money, I'm sure. I, that's <laughs> yeah. it. Didn't raise enough money. Um, and so I walked into it really not having a depth of experience when it comes to running for office. And maybe that was a good thing because had I known going into it what it would be like, I don't know that I would have made the same decision. It was, you know, pick the analogy, drinking from a fire hose, jumping off a cliff, diving into the deep end, maybe all three at once. It was a very difficult experience the first time I ran. And no one had expected that amount of money. I think by the end of the day in 2018, over a million dollars were spent in that race, which is absurd and disgusting, nice. in my opinion, for that amount of money to be spent on a local county race. But that had not been done in Oregon before. In fact, I unfortunately, I think, have the distinction of having run in the first and second most expensive, most expensive DA races race. in Oregon's history. So that was hard. But I'll say coming out the other end of it in 2018, it gave me this real sense of obligation, duty, community support. So many different adjectives and words we can use, but really this idea that, you know, there's this community mandate, this feeling in our community of what we want when it comes to public safety in our justice system. And I felt, frankly, I can't let these people down. You know, so many people knocked on doors, donated money, stuck their neck out to endorse, which is a big deal when someone endorses someone else, because you're really lending your reputation to that other person, I believe. And so in 2018, when I won, it was this incredible feeling of, first, I was happy, of course, because I had erased the curse from high school, uh, losing that previous <laughs> election. But then also it was a sense of, okay, I need to do this. And I need to do it for my community, for my coworkers, for my family. You mentioned that earlier. You know, I live here too. I don't want my car stolen either. 
I like my catalytic converter just as much <laughs> as the next guy. And so that's what propelled me forward in that first term. And then the second race, which just finished, seems like yesterday, but it was back in May now. It was basically a repeat in many ways of what had happened four years earlier, but at a different time in our nation. Now it's 2022 and you know, everybody knows how 2022 is so different than 2018. And so some parts of it were easier because it was a repeat. Some parts of it were much, much harder just because of the environment that we're in. I got a quick follow up on that. Maybe not quick. Um, and then Reagan, I'll hand it back to Go you. Ahead. So I'm going to read an excerpt from the Oregonian. And what I'm what I'm trying to tease out a little bit is like, I think people have a really clear sense of the difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden or Republicans and Democrats. Like, I think there's some pretty clear issues where the sides are very different. And it strikes me that the DA battles across the country are like slightly more opaque for like the average consumer of media to understand. So this is what the Oregonian said about your race. Barden, a longtime prosecutor, ran as a law and order candidate and Decker, which was your opponent, a local defense attorney and former federal prosecutor in Arizona pledged to focus on alternatives to incarceration. So I guess my like two-part question is, one, is that a fair summary of how you would describe like the two camps of not necessarily you versus your opponent, but like the two camps? And what what is your like good faith steel man argument for what the other side is asking for or concerned about or running on just to help kind of listeners understand the baseline? Yeah, great question, Ben. So first of all, we in our American society love to simplify things and we have to because complex topics and complex you know structures need to be simplified to be digestible for us to understand and comprehend. But it's not that simple. Just like everything in this world shouldn't be Republican or Democrat, you know, the DA race is not simply you're either lock them up, law and order, or alternative kumbaya. It's not that simple at all. And actually, that's my platform is it's not an either or, it's an and. And um, nevertheless, people like to simplify. And so, yeah, on the spectrum of things, you compare me to my opponent. Yes, he is more toward, he was more, and that crowd was more toward essentially the alternatives to what might be a traditional prosecution. And on the spectrum of things, I was more toward, hey, there's a role for using jail, using prison, and holding people accountable. The reality is, the where I am on this whole thing is, we need reform, absolutely, but it needs to be responsible reform. And every time I've ever used that phrase reform, I always put the word responsible in front of it, because reform for reform's sake, I think is not good. It's window dressing. It's virtue signaling. It's a platitude that doesn't actually accomplish a good and desirable result. But what are some examples of responsible reforms? One thing I'm really proud of that I think anyone, whether you're on the right or the left, would say, yeah, that's a good idea. We have what's called a veterans treatment court. And this started maybe four years ago in Washington County. And we were one of the first, if not the first in the state to do this, where we basically, it's when we use the, right, the word treatment court, we're talking about a specialty court process that is developed so that people who've been charged with crimes can be held accountable and for the crime they've committed, but also they can get some intensive services and supervision and more attention than they otherwise might get from the system to help them navigate through the root causes of that crime. So what we do is we take service veterans who have served in one of the armed forces in the U.S., they've been honorably discharged, and they've committed a crime at some point, and there's a connection between the crime they committed and some harm or trauma that arose out of their service. So mm -hmm. let's say they were injured in Iraq 
they developed an opioid addiction as a result of that injury, and now they've they've stolen something to help fuel that addiction that they have. That's kind of a classic example. Yep. So the traditional DA's office approach would be to prosecute that person just like the next person who comes in the door. Veterans Treatment Court allows us to take the resources of the VA to take some um, service veterans and have the judge be a veteran, the prosecutor be a veteran, bring these veterans together in a collaborative environment where they can kind of learn from each other, hold them accountable, punish them if they screw up while they're on probation. But then at the end, if they successfully graduate and complete that program, either reduce that conviction down to something lower or eliminate it entirely. So there's a kind of a carrot and stick approach and a reward at the end. And we've seen incredible success from that. I think in uh, the four years we've had that program now, we've only had one graduate go out and commit a new crime afterwards. That's called a recidivism wow. rate. And yeah. when you've only, basically when it's one, that's when you know you're, you're doing something right. So to me, that's an example of a forward-thinking reform effort that's progressive in a really, really good way. At the same time, if you commit a crime in Washington County where you attack somebody, you hurt somebody, or you are a prolific thief and you steal things like catalytic converters or you shoplift, we're going to prosecute you. You're going to go to jail or you're going to go to prison because you are not safe to be in our community. And there needs to be that sense of law and order so that we frankly can hold people accountable and keep the rest of this safe for everybody else. That makes total sense to me. So I got one question that I just want to keep really short and just kind of get your like one or two sentence answer to. And then I want to come back to those alternative treatment stuff and talk about 110. So my short question is, you're talking about the both and and not being, you know, one or the other. But I think one of the challenges is when these races get pushed up to the statewide and then into the national level, you appeared on Fox News a couple of times, you know, you'll you'll get coverage also of your opponent or just of the race on, on places like MSNBC, which leans a little bit more left, right. And when you're talking to those hosts, the questions very much are attempting to put you in the box. I think, or in a particular box of whatever they think their audience wants to hear. So how do you approach doing those kind of national appearances and still get value out of it for your campaign and for Oregon while trying to answer these questions that are really trying to square you into a small space? Yeah, thanks. That's a good question. I don't like how people try and pigeonhole. I'll basically say yes to any mainstream media outlet that reaches out to me. So Fox News reaches out and wants to interview me about something that's specific to Oregon or that you know might be helpful for the nation based on what we're doing here in Oregon. Mm -hmm. I'll say yes to that. MSNBC, CNN, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, anyone reaches out, I'll say yes. And some of those other outlets have reached out and I have said I've said yes. I've never said no. So I think the answer is, you know, as a DA in my position, you need to be accessible, transparent, and available to answer those questions. And, uh, you know, whether it's a Democrat or Republican on the right or on the left, as long as they're fair questions with a legitimate media outlet, I think my obligation is to be available. Yeah, that makes very, sense. Very generous to include us with the legitimate outlets, but we are honored. <laughs> well, I almost said no, but, you know, I figured, okay. yeah. So then now to you're talking about veterans treatment courts. And I think especially with we also had drug courts in Oregon for a while. I don't think they were widely understood. I don't think that they had a lot of we'll just say name ID, you know, in the as far as a lot of voters weren't aware of how they functioned, what they were, what they did. So when Measure 110 comes up and they say, do you want to treat, you know, the, the broad question was posed, 
should we treat drugs as a criminal justice issue or should we treat it as a health issue? They said health issue. And then it also, so to do that, you decriminalize some of the drugs and then theoretically you stand up some treatment options. What's your take on measure 110? Are there changes that need to be made? And then how did it impact Washington County? And measure 110, in my opinion, was a bit of a, it was a Trojan horse law. So we all know the story of the Trojan horse where it was led into the gates where the people thought they were letting in this wooden horse that was not a threat. And it turned out there was a threat within. The, there were hidden troops that in the middle of the night came out and then attacked everyone behind the gates, that old Greek story. Yep. So um, that's Measure 110. You know, it passed overwhelmingly in Oregon, and it was titled the Treatment and Rehabilitation Act. Who wouldn't vote for that? I mean, that makes good sense. We all want that. And when you say things like, hey, we should provide treatment for people. We shouldn't criminalize people who are dealing with a medical issue. Those are all really good things to say, and they sound great, and they make good sense. But the devil's in the details. So what we now know, and what many of us predicted ahead of time, is it was that Trojan horse. It was really an attempt to decriminalize something, the possession of hard street drugs, meth, heroin, cocaine, ecstasy, you name it. And by decriminalizing it, what it did was it took away the only bridge we had in Oregon toward requiring people to undergo treatment. Now, I'm not saying that the system we had in place before 110 was a great system. I actually don't think it was. But I am saying in the category of something's better than nothing, it's way better back then than what we have now. What we have now is nothing. And so in the perfect world, what should have happened is we should have stood up all of these different treatment opportunities and resources that people say 110 will eventually bring. Those should have been stood up first. Then once they're in place, that's when you take away, you know, the old way of doing things. But by tearing down the only bridge we had toward treatment in 2019 with 110, before we built up another bridge toward treatment, now we've just left so many people without resources. And we've seen it happen. You know, we've seen overdose deaths increase. We've seen property crime and violent crime increase, et cetera. So I'm not saying 110 caused those things. It didn't. They existed before 110 was here. But did it throw gas on a fire? Absolutely, it threw gasoline on a fire. Can we get out of it? Yeah, we can. But the legislature is going to have to make some difficult and hard decisions instead of ignoring it as they've done the last couple of years. I actually think what you, a version of what you said is, I think the emerging consensus here, like Rep. Rob Nose, who is a very progressive Democrat representing Southeast Portland, said something similar to Willamette Week. Raquel Moore Green, Republican representative from Salem, gave Reagan a pretty similar overview. I think that the question, I agree in the legislature need, I like the term bridge. I think there needs to be more bridges to treatment. And I don't think the bridges can just be exclusively like, I don't know how to put this opt in if you want to, which seems to be the like basis of the system right now. I think the diverging point, one of the diverging points is like, do we need a full repeal of measure 110? Or can we tweak the sort of back end? Do you have a, a strong opinion on that? Well, I, I have an opinion. I mean, I boy, if I were king for a day, or if I had the <laughs> ability to, uh, I've got an opinion on, on everything. On that issue, I don't think we necessarily need a full repeal of it. I would like to see us, frankly, take the good of 110 and take the good that did exist before 110 and create something new that can move us forward, not backwards. So I think a repeal would be better than where we are today. But I think the best path forward is to have some compulsory aspect toward treatment. People need to be motivated, carrot and stick, whatever you want to use, a reward, you know, some compulsion, something needs to motivate people who are 
are dealing with the incredibly difficult addictive nature of these drugs to motivate them to get treatment. If not for their benefit, frankly, then for the rest of our benefit, because if they don't get the treatment they need and kick this habit, then they're gonna to continue to still deal with the health consequences of that that are gonna be a burden on our society. And some percentage of them will continue to commit crimes, which is a burden on our society. Some percentage of them will be homeless, which is a burden on our society. We'll deal with mental health issues because of the correlation between now what we know with some drug use and mental health issues, which is also a burden on our society. So we gotta do something to compel people to do that. At the same time, you know, is the criminal justice system the best place to put these resources for dealing with an addiction or mental health? Probably not. But until we come up with a better plan, that's really the only thing we have, the only bridge we had. So I'd like to see something different moving forward. I'd like to see the legislature convene some sort of group to make that happen. And frankly, what's missing so often in government is accountability among leaders. I'd like to see some accountability from the Oregon Health Authority. Basically, they need to make this work. That's what they're here for. And from the governor on down, we need someone to say, hey, look, this is a problem. We know it's a problem. We're going to figure out what the problem is. We're going to address it. We're going to come up with a plan within X number of months. And then these are the people that are going to be held accountable for that. I'd love to see that happen. And in the corporate world, you would see that, not so much in government. I hope that that something to that effect does happen. I do think that the leg- I do think the legislature will work on it. And I will just, ben, you know. Ben, when you get elected, you need to demand it. Well, no, I mean, that is my, I think that is my job. And I think that is, you'll be a staffer in the legislature. I think it's your job on the Senate side. I will, I will um, walk into your office and demand it. <laughs> yeah, thank you. But what I, what I will say, Kevin, to kind of build on what you said, because I agree the burden on society piece is real. And I think that's what people in Portland are expressing in what we're seeing in public opinion polls. But the other side of it too, is like, it's also not compassionate for an addict to be empowered to continue down that road as someone who like a member of my family is, has been down that road and is down that road for over a decade now. I think sometimes compassion for people struggling with addiction or people struggling with mental health is used to justify what I think of as really not compassionate policy that doesn't actually help people. So I think you make a compelling point from one side, but I'm I'm just adding that I think it's as compelling that like it's not compassionate to let an addict suffer without support and without help and without a bridge to treatment. So anyway, anything you want to add on measure 110, Kevin, before I transition to another hot topic? Only that I agree with what you just said. I think that's a great additional point to make. So another hot topic, uh, public defense crisis. This is one that like, to be candid, was not on my radar until everything blew up. I'm sure it was on your radar long before as a prosecutor. This is a quote from OPB. This is from a month ago or so. They said, Oregon is in the midst of an unprecedented and troubling public defense crisis, which now includes more than 700 defendants, some jailed without access to attorneys. The basic summary here is like the public defense system is broken. Uh, There's not enough attorneys to cover the caseload. Public defenders are leaving the field. And so what's happening is there's these massive backlogs. There's people who don't have an assigned public defender. It's taking longer to resolve cases, et cetera, et cetera. I guess my first question, and we got a couple on this, but like as a prosecutor, how have you experienced the crisis? How has it impacted your work? It's been really difficult to watch because as a prosecutor, the role of the, of the DA and of prosecutors, we are not typically involved in the part of the system that funds and decides which attorneys are going to represent which defendants. So by definition, it's an adversarial system. You've got prosecutors on one side, defense attorneys on the other side. 
we are kept out of that traditional conversation that happens about, okay, how do we provide this court-appointed attorney for this defendant? And I guess taking a step back to just let your listeners know, in Oregon, there's um, a state agency called OPDS, Office of Public Defense Services, and their job by law is to essentially make the indigent defense system work. Uh, and the indigent defense system is the, the public system that essentially makes sure that anyone who can't afford a lawyer gets a lawyer for free in a criminal process. So that process has worked over the years, but like so many things, it works until it doesn't, and then it becomes a crisis. So this really started hitting the radar in a really public way here recently, but those in the system have known that, the, that it's been strained for many, many years leading up until now. So it's no surprise that we have this problem. Like so many other things in our government now, the state agency or the, the actors responsible for making it happen and work have failed at that job. And now because they're failing at that job to make this indigent defense system work, local communities are paying the price. And when I say local communities, I'm including people accused of crimes who are charged now with a crime but don't have a lawyer, but also the victims of those crimes. Because when the case doesn't have a lawyer on the case, it can't proceed forward and it just sits in limbo. And that person might be sitting in jail in limbo, or they might be released and not in jail, but the case isn't progressing and it's hanging over everybody's head. And that's no form of justice. I think it was even Martin Luther King who said, justice delayed is justice denied. denied. Mm -hmm. And I think we all recognize that as a truth. So it's a real problem. You know, why is this a problem and what's the path forward? Those are complicated questions. I will point out that I think many people see this as a statewide problem. And while it's true that there are parts of this problem that exist throughout Oregon, if you look at the numbers for who currently doesn't have a lawyer and is accused of a crime, it's basically a metro area problem. The vast, vast majority of the attorneys or the defendants that don't have attorneys are in Multnomah County. There's over a thousand there. And then they're in Washington County. There's not a single person in Clackamas County interestingly, that doesn't have a lawyer. And this is all according to the Oregon Judicial Department. They've got what's called a dashboard. You can pull it up. I'll, I'll show it to you if you like, so you can let your viewers know where it is. Mm -hmm. And it shows you exactly in real time who does and doesn't have a lawyer and where are they from. And then when you look throughout the rest of the state, you know, some counties like Marion County might have 30 to 40 people without lawyers. But you look at some of the smaller counties, it might be one or two person. And in many counties, none. So why is it a problem and why is it a problem in only certain areas? I think it actually comes down to one primary issue, and that is defense attorney pay, because we all know the metro area is the most expensive area or one of the most expensive areas to live in in Oregon. And a lot of these defense attorneys just aren't getting paid very well to do the work and they can get paid more doing different work. So at the end of the day, the free market system actually has a role to play in helping create this problem, but maybe also solve the problem. I think that if defense attorneys would be paid something closer to what the market rate would be, I think the problem would significantly be diminished. Last follow up on this, and I, this is probably dangerous territory, but I'm curious what you made of. So to make a long story short for listeners, the Oregon Chief Justice statutorily has the purview of appointing people to the I believe it's called the Public Services Public Defense Services Commission, which like oversees the state side. My understanding 
she wanted the guy who was in charge, Steve Singer, to leave. There was a vote of the previous commission where they didn't meet the threshold to remove him from office. So she sort of reshuffled the deck of the commissioners, appointed new commissioners, and then Steve Singer was fired. I think they've since brought on someone new. There's someone new in. Steve Singer is now suing the state. What can you give shed some light on what you think about that? That's dangerous. You can't you can't speak against the chief justice, I imagine, as a prosecutor. <laughs> but oh. any comment? Well, first of all, all I know about that is what I've read in the news, which is a dangerous thing because um, it's usually not 100 percent of the information that's out there. Um, I just want the system to work. And so I know it wasn't working before. Uh, and sometimes if you ever play Scrabble, uh, you know, when you, you can't seem to make the words work out of the letters that you have, um, sometimes the best path forward is to sacrifice a turn and just get new tiles and, you know, see what happens now. So, you know, mixing it up, shuffling it up, getting a new leader, seeing if we can make the system work to me seemed like um, a really way to potentially have a positive step forward. And I just hope that we can make something work going forward. That was a very effective use of board games to explain uh, <laughs> explain something I expect. So my next question is about cops and robbers. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Is uh, yeah, a little bit. So I think the only there might be one other one, but the main and most high profile progressive district attorney is your counterpart in Multnomah County, Mike Schmidt. Does how he handle his office and the way he prosecutes crime, whether you disagree with it or not, does that affect your office and how you have to handle or deal with more or less cases and, and what happens in Washington County since you guys are neighbors? Absolutely. And, you know, at the end of the day, crime doesn't follow the county lines. So, you know, we have these neat orders that we think of. I'm the DA of Washington County. He's the DA of Oklahoma. There's a DA in Clackamas. And we all know where those borders are and who handles what case. Um, but people don't pay attention to that. Very few people are aware when they cross a county line or really care about it. Um, and why would you? Um, and the same thing holds true with criminals. Um, and I'll, I guess I'll put a caveat on that. Uh, criminals have started to pay more attention lately. I actually had a detective call me up just last week from Tigard, and he was talking about an arrest that had been made of a, of a very prolific um, thief who's been hitting a lot of uh, stores like Home Depot's, Albertsons, et cetera. And uh, he was describing for me how after the arrest was made, um, he was complaining that he had committed the crime in Washington County because he <laughs> actually gets arrested and taken to jail and he wished he had committed the crime in Multnomah County. So, um, you know, do people pay attention to the, to the borders? I, I actually were noticing more criminals are making statements like that. Um, but at the end of the day, what we're also noticing is the public, the collapse of the public safety system in Multnomah County. And let's just be real for a second. That's exactly what that is. It's a it's a collapse of public safety, which is inexcusable, and people should be held accountable for that. But that collapse is not isolated in its impact in simply Multnomah County. Let me give you maybe a, an example of how that might hold true in other areas of our lives. Let's say you live in a neighborhood and your responsibility is your home and your yard to make it look nice and you know paint it whatever color you want, water your lawn, et cetera. And let's say you've got a next door neighbor and you, your next door neighbor, let's say, decides that he's gonna stop taking care of his house to the same level you take care of your house and starts to kind of just not look as nice. Well, your first thought might be, well, it's his, it's his house, his yard, glad that's not my house, glad that's not my yard. And it starts falling apart and maybe he needs a new roof, but he doesn't get it, all these things. And you start thinking, well, boy, I'm glad my house is good. 
But then after a certain amount of time, when that home starts to get more and more dilapidated, you start thinking, well, wait a second, that's kind of going to impact my house and my property value. And it's going to impact how people perceive the way I look and the way my, my neighborhood looks. And it's going to impact whether I can sell my house. And eventually, it, you know, if that house continues to fall into disrepair and becomes a blight, then it has a real direct impact on your home. And so I see different counties sort of the same way. If the citizens of a particular county want to elect a DA who's going to do certain things, good for them. That's democracy at work. And that's what we saw happen in Multnomah County. It was a very different approach in Multnomah County than, than Washington County. And that's the way the system works. And I applaud it. But then when a county starts to fall into disrepair and it starts to impact other counties around it, that's when I start to get really worried. And that's what we're seeing. So we ran some numbers. I'll give you some stats you might find interesting because I started wondering about a year ago, how much is Multnomah County's public safety system failure impacting Washington County? And so we looked at certain crimes and what we noticed comparing 2019 to 2022. So just looking at it like a three year swing, are we seeing increase in, let's say, Portland criminals coming into to Washington County to commit crimes? And the answer is yes. So we saw an 81% increase in Portland criminals committing burglaries in Washington County in that time period. We saw a 114% increase of Portland criminals committing robberies. Uh, we saw an 85% increase of Portland criminals breaking into cars in Washington County and a 139% increase for firearms offenses. And that's tracked with, go ahead. Does Portland criminal mean like someone whose home address is in Portland? Yes. Yes. So, you know, we have access, of course, when someone gets arrested and charged, we know what their home address is by virtue of their DMV or whatever registration they have. So we just tracked who's committing crimes here and where do they live. And uh, we compared our data we have from 2019 with our data from 2022, and we saw those increases. And it, it tracked with anecdotally what we were seeing, just more and more of those of those happening. I'm not saying that we don't have homegrown criminals in Washington County. We do, um, plenty of them. But what I am saying is we're seeing a lot more coming from Portland. And you can talk to any police officer on the street in any of our cities, and they'll tell you the same thing. They're seeing it day in and day out. Hmm. Well, we're gonna take a we're gonna take a, a rapid turn here for our final question. Um, you were you had a pretty high profile endorsement of Betsy Johnson when she uh, I think there was some like press conference downtown that I saw. Um, she was endorsed by many of the sort of like police groups, public safety groups, and I think you were part of that coalition that spoke. Um, curious what uh, what your reasons were for endorsing Betsy Johnson, and are you sticking with the endorsement in these in these final days as the poll numbers might get a little dicier? Absolutely, I'm sticking with the endorsement. It's a principled endorsement of a person who I uh, greatly respect and who I've known both on a personal and a professional level for years. So it was an easy decision for me to make. Um, you know, Betsy is she is you, you get what you see with her. Um, so she's transparent in that sense. And I think that's kind of part of her appeal, uh, kind of at a popular level. She calls it like it is. Um, she also, in my opinion, has just a proven track record of standing up for public safety. And that's why you've seen this unprecedented level of endorsement for her by public safety leaders. And finally, um, what really resonates with me is her, her unaffiliated or non-affiliated nature. So she's not running as a D or an R. And I get it. Most people are D or an R these days. Um, 
But at the end of the day, um, I think what Oregon needs right now is something different, uh, something different than what just hasn't worked in the past. I'm not trying to blame one party or the other, um, but I'm trying to say that to me, she seemed like that path forward that was something different at a time when it just seemed sorely needed. And it resonated with me because I'm not registered one way or the other either. Public safety is not a partisan issue. And I think Oregon's challenges aren't. So I, I fully support her. We've seen polls call it wrong before. And, you know, I'm going to cross my fingers and say a prayer and see what happens on election night. And as I said, it's a principled endorsement. and I'm proud to be able to make it. I'm going to call an audible and ask one final question that that made me think of. There's a good chance, maybe Betsy will win, but there's a good chance that it will be either Tina Kotek or Christine Drazen. What do you hope that the next governor, regardless of who it is, what do you hope their focus is on public safety? Like, what should they be doing in their first? We use the first hundred days a lot. I don't know if that's the right measure or not, but what should the focus of the next governor be on public safety? Yeah, I think. I think what needs to happen with the next governor is they need to listen to um, the community and listen to the experts. And that's different than listening to the loudest voices in the room or mm -hmm. the most connected you know, politicians in the room. Um, I think that what we've seen over the last X number of years is so many bad decisions um, at a state level with the legislature when it comes to public safety that have just tied the hands of uh, prosecutors and police officers and really negatively impacted the community. I'm not talking about you know, the, the people in the room who um, have the microphone all the time or always have the platform, but when you think about, and this is what I think about every day as DA, I think about the silent majority of people, the people that are going about their business and their big thing they're worrying about every day is, what's for dinner? How do I get the kids to practice? You know, what do I have to do at work tomorrow? That kind of thing. They're not the ones attending community meetings and going to city councils and testifying at the legislature all the time. They're just doing their stuff and they expect the system to work. And so I think this next governor needs to think about those people when she's making decisions and also consult with the experts, the DAs, the chiefs, the sheriffs, the people that are doing the day-to-day -day work. Because what we've seen happen in Salem is the vo those voices I think have been ignored uh, to the peril and to the detriment of the rest of Oregon or uh, Oregonians. Uh, well, District Attorney Kevin Barden, thanks for taking some time to chat with us on the Oregon Bridge. Uh, if there are folks who want to learn more about your work in Washington County or get in touch, uh, where's the best place for them to go? We've got a website. Uh, it's uh, WashingtonCountyDA.org. Uh, you can Google it and find it as well. And it's a great spot. We also have all the traditional social media um, that you're welcome to follow us on. And we try and pump out as much information as we can about what we're up to. Awesome. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate your time today. Thank, Thank you so much. much.